Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I was one of the four people who brought you the A to Z of Davy Bowie podcast, alongside Rob Hughes, Howard Nock, and Jason Reed. If you're engaged in our 72-episode dive into the world of Bowie, maybe, just maybe, you'll be interested in our latest endeavour. If so... You are about to take a trip into a parallel universe, a magical place in time when music papers from the 60s, 70s and 80s are still current and newsworthy, all in the company of me, Mark Riley, and Rob Hughes. Available on Patreon, each episode will either jog your memory or perhaps make you green with envy over all these momentous events that took place while you were in the pub. Time, please. We discuss music news of the moment, have some laughs, and even listen to some tunes. This particular episode is a taste of what you can expect when you subscribe to the Parallel Universe, available now on Patreon.com. Enjoy. You are now entering Parallel Universe. And wipe your feet on the way in. With Rob Hughes. And Mark Riley. Roxy Music, play two low-key dates in Southport. Are there any other kind? <laughs> oh, mate. <laughs> the floral no, hall. No, no I, you're right. So Southport wasn't a big venue. No, yeah, I mean, it still isn't, is it? But uh, so, so it's, it, we're looking here now um, at March 1974. And, um, yeah, so uh, Brian was leaving the glam behind at this point in time. Mm. And he was, uh, yeah, he was going for the tuxedo look, wasn't he? He was. It was all kind of changing. Obviously, Eno had left. You know, he did leave by his own accord. He wasn't sort of pushed out. But as I say, he wasn't made particularly welcome, was he? There's somebody once told me, well, you couldn't have two Bryans in that group, you know. So Eno had left the year before, uh, and Eddie Jobson come in. And so the the whole sort of the sound and texture of the band had changed, hadn't it? Sort of violin and keyboards more to the fore. Ferry was also starting his solo career at the same time. So, it's, so this is in between, really, Country Life and Stranded, isn't it? Yeah, the story comes out. Like a lot of bands, actually. Well, like Bowie, like everybody with a brain, really. Roxy Music wanted to leave the glam thing behind because they embraced mm. it completely, didn't they? If you see yeah, yeah, Virginia yeah. playing on top of the pops with the makeup and the spangly oh, suits and all amazing. that, so glam, uh, probably only out glammed by Bowie, really. Mm. Um, but yeah, he, then he went through the tuxedo phase, and it was about a year later that I saw them, previously mentioned Bellevue, Kings Hall, yeah. where they're in the army clubber. So oh, yeah. they were kind of doing the Bowie thing of reinventing themselves, but not as well, I no. would say. Definitely not. Also on tour, Hatfield and the North and Gong to co-top a short concert tour during the second half of April, voted by Virgin. Uh, it's a special budget price tour with 44p, uh, the top admission at all venues. A spokesman said the package has been designed to alleviate the gloom of the present crisis. I'm guessing they're talking about um, you know the sort of political, social gloom, because it was a three-day week and all that stuff, isn't it, rather than the musical one. But uh, a lot of these package tours, they were sort of de rigueur, weren't they? This is a few years before Stiff and the rest of it. Yeah, well, there was also the Charisma tours, wasn't there, which had Genesis mm. and Van de Graaff Generator and Lindisfarne and those kind of things, all for 50p. Um, and, and I'd love to have seen one of those, definitely. Yeah. Uh, one of the stranger um, appearances would be Bill Haley, who is on the Cabaret Trail. Oh, do you know, there's a picture of him here. I mean, I, so this is 1974, so it's 20 years since uh, Rock Around the Clock. And you would look at him doing Rock Around the Clock, he looks like he's in his late 40s then, didn't he? Obviously, no offence to the man. But it's a funny thing is what he says about, he says, oh, you know, I was doing really well until this, you know, this young kid came on the block and, and, and just usurped me and I made me look cumbersome. It was Elvis Presley. Elvis yeah. Presley made everybody in the world look cumbersome in the late 50s, didn't he? So he shouldn't beat himself up. Yeah, in a way, even Haley does say as much. He said, really, it kind of took the pressure off in a strange way. It just allowed me to do, well, 
well, again, you know, essentially he's kind of live rock around the clock for various other generations uh, for years to come. That's what he was doing. He wasn't kind of really wasn't reinventing the wheel from there on in. No, and I do love this. He was playing one of the, it would have been like the Golden Guard in Withenshaw, mm. one of those chicken in the basket places is what he's doing. But I love the fact that he's got a compare who is introducing it, who does a bit of singing and a bit a few jokes here and there. <laughs> and he just, and he's getting like bottled and ashtrays thrown at him and all sorts and then he decides to do rock around the clock this is very secret i mean <laughs> that's like you know that is like the support band going on and doing the main acts act before they go on what was going through his head here? this is at uh, the stardust club isn't it brighouse is that right? what and it is yeah and he said uh so the compere has to say that uh, cabaret time was over. Bill Haley wasn't going to play an encore, OK, after the gig. Uh, so still dipping and diving from the battery of well-aimed missiles, he went on to commit what was surely the ultimate folly of singing Rock Around the Clock just three minutes after Bill Haley and the Comets had performed it themselves. Uh, what was he thinking? He did it afterwards, right? Afterwards. I even got that bit wrong, right? I love this as uh, well. It said, when Haley prepares for a show, now it takes him around four minutes. He changes his jacket, adjusts his tie, <laughs> pats down his kiss curl, and he's ready. He seems to hold back rather on stage, only fronting the band for half the numbers. Otherwise, he just keeps to simple chords and grins enigmatically. Yeah, there you go. I mean, he look. This is the thing. So even back in the day, he was only in his late twenties, but he's he's still only forty seven at this point in seventy four. Yeah, but if you think about it, I mean, he did like the touch pay because they were the first riots in cinemas and stuff, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, for, for the films and the gigs and everything. So we're talking about Mott the Hoople and the Royal Albert Hall ripping it to shreds. But he was the daddy. Yeah, he was a daddy, no doubt about it. And then the piece, just very briefly, kind of follows him onto his next gig, which is in Farnworth. Uh, and it, it says he's in, in his dressing room in front of a huge dressing room mirror with a continual blubbery smile, it says, perspiring and somehow resembling a kind of amiable grapefruit. I wonder whether he read this. <laughs> <laughs> amiable grapefruit. That's a good name for a band, that, I think. Oh, it's a prog band there in waiting, definitely. Stewie George, right, okay, so people who aren't familiar with Stewie George, he was uh, David Bowie's bodyguard during the Ziggy era and and beyond, actually, for a while. He later went on to uh, look after Evil Knievel during his superstardom. He's a bit of a legend. So there's, there's people on the uh, kind of uh, the periphery, for want of a better word, of Bowie's career who became mm. kind of a little bit um, iconic in their own right. Warren Peace being one, Jeff yeah. McCormack. Mm. When he turned up, when Bowie did the um, the uh, session for us at Maida Vale, there was a massive buzz going on because Duncan was turning up, Bowie's son, and yeah. also Jeff McCormack. Like, oh, Jeff, Warren Peace, Warren Peace is coming. Oh, and and he turned up and we've, be, and we've got to know him. And, uh, and I class him as a friend now. And the only time time that we ever have crosswords is about Man City and Arsenal. He's a big gooner. Um, he is. But one of those people was most definitely Stewie George, the driver as well. His driver was another guy who was, you know, in the same kind of circles. But Stewie yeah. George, he actually hailed from, from Hull, didn't he? Yeah, so he'd had the same background as Mick Ronson and Woody and, and the Rats. So he'd come out of that. So he knew everybody. That's um, where the connection came. And he was sort of, as I say, he was immersed in the whole club scene, which also sort of, from which also came people like Rick Kemp and Michael Chapman as well, to some extent. Uh, but it says here, Stuart George used to be David Bowie's bodyguard. Uh, during that time, he got a cigarette in the eye, brick across the head, numerous miscellaneous kicks and bruises, and abuse from all quarters, all in the line of duty. Uh, now that Bowie's off the road, Stewie's gone into business on his own account with a company called Sturico, uh, designed to be a security for the 70s, for the audience, as well as for the act, which is interesting. 
Uh, everybody in the business has security atrocity stories to tell. Audiences, photographers, even musicians themselves have fallen under the fists of drunken clowns who are more dangerous to the peace and safety of a gig than the kids are. It continues, Stewie knows uh, about that one too. At one gig on Bowie's last tour, I saw him lay out a security guard hired by the hall when he was seen getting too heavy with the kids. The, the story is, I believe, that Mick Ronson introduced Stewie George to Bowie. Mm. That's as I understand yeah, it. Yeah. And there was also a story told about... Um, it might have been working with the rats, actually, with Mick Ronson. I could be wrong, but I think it's right. Uh, but the, the crowd are getting really rowdy. Right, really. A, a certain core of the crowd were getting, right, bothersome. And Stewie yeah. George just went round and put them all against the wall, like ten guys. And he's saying, if any of you move, I'm going to clock you. And they're all just stood there, <laughs> terrified, with the backs to the wall. And so um, a legendary hard man, but... But you see photographs of David Bowie, particularly mm. there's a great shot of him running, I think, into the Hammersmith Odeon out the back of a limo, and you've just, just got Stewie yeah. George there, like yeah. looking round and thinking, right, I'm ready, I'm ready, whatever whatever happens now. And funnily enough, there was a David Bowie did have another Stewie George later on in his life. When I got to know him a little bit, there would always be this guy with him. And if, again, if you look at photographs of David Bowie in the last probably 10 years of his life and on the last tour, and, be- and, and previous to that as well. Mm. You will often see this guy, I think his name was Eric, um, but you will see this familiar face behind and he's always he's always concentrating and looking. You can see he's just scanning the whole situation just to make sure that there's nothing that he has to get involved in. Yeah. And, and of course, Bowie would need that. Yeah, but you can imagine though, you know, when you think of the Stewie George in the Ziggy era, I mean, it really was. You talk about T-Rex to see and Mania, it was really starting to kind of it went off so quickly. I mean, as we've we've kind of talked before on the wireless something about this, but the, you know, the Ziggy tour starts off slow and it builds and it builds, and by the end of it, it is just like uh, it's become teenage mania again. And Stewie was the only guy really employed on a full time basis to deal with all that, all the gigs. Yeah, uh, it, the uh, piece continues. So Stewie was getting used to being someone's personal bodyguard, and Bowie was getting used to having one. No, I was getting used to being with him. I've been doing this since I was seventeen in the states, according to Stewie. Some kids genuinely thought. Bowie was from the outer space. They just couldn't believe that such a person actually existed and they wanted to get to him just to see that he was human uh, as much as any other reason. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that obviously Rick Ronson wanted him as security as well, I think. Stewie George is still around. I know this because uh, we have a new, you and I have a mutual friend in John Cambridge who was uh, Bowie's drummer before uh, Woody, of course. And also... <laughs> There's a guy, I can't remember his name, but he came to give us a quote for our bathroom a few weeks ago. So he knows Stewie quite well. And in fact, he, uh, he, he doesn't live far from me, I believe, but he just doesn't like talking about the old days. But this, the guy who came to quote for our, for our bathroom said, he's got these amazing photographs. He says, some of which I've seen or he's given to me, you know, of uh, from that time. So they're all from, you know, from 72 onwards that nobody's ever seen before. And of course, he's got the stories as well. But he doesn't particularly, he's not particularly interested in talking about them. There's only one person, possibly, from that era, anyway, and, and, and her era goes right through from 1972. Two, I believe, maybe 73, to yeah. um, Bowie's untimely death. And that would be Coco Schwab. And yeah. if Coco, Coco Schwab could write the definitive book on David Bowie, but we know she never will. But mm. for the uh, for that mad glam period, and as you say, slightly afterwards as well, Stewie George would probably be the one who could really, really, you know, tell you where the bodies were buried and just give you the kind of toe-curling mad stories of what went on, because it would have been wild, but he's not doing it, and, and credit yeah. to him for that. 
I mean, obviously, Elton John, he's just been through Glastonbury and all that kind of mm. stuff, and, and, and which would have been the highlight of his career. But I'm sure I'm right in saying that the actual highlight of his career was that he um, took to the runway at Manchester Airport and serenaded the Manchester City team when they got oh. off the plane, having won the treble in Istanbul. This is a true oh, story, Bob. Is it really? I hadn't heard about that. Yeah. I wonder how long that would take for you to bring that up. I mean, I don't know what, why he was coerced, because we know, of course, he's a huge Watford fan. He used to be a chairman. I'm not sure if he's still involved on the board at Watford or not, but what's he doing hanging around with your lot? What was this coerced word that you used, Bob? I think that he just wanted to be associated with the greatest football team on earth. Anyway, we need to move on, don't we? Well, do you know, I just want to say right at the end of this, says that he's due to start in um, a documentary called Aquarius on TV. Last Saturday, he was best man at Bernie Taupin's wedding when he married American Maxine Siebelman at his hometown of Market Raisin. Actually, it was uh, it's Maxine Feebleman who was the inspiration for Tiny Dancer, which is one of these so- songs which is subject, isn't it, to urban myth because supposedly there was a story going around that Tiny Dancer was referring to the size of Elton's manhood. Now, I was going to mention that, and I'm glad you mentioned it before me, because it needed to be said, Bob. (laughs) But beyond that, right, let's think about it. You know, how this myth could hold water. (laughs) Pardon the phrase. Would it be your... Anyway, but, I mean, Bernie (laughs) Taupin... He he wrote the words. So what's he, he doing writing a song about supposedly Elton John's penis? Oh, you exactly, know. exactly. It you know, hold I mean, water. That, that, I mean that just doesn't stand up, does it? Let's face it. I mean, <laughs> think. I think we'll let that one just hang Look, there. Mate. <laughs> well, pardon the phrase. All right, so we are looking at uh, sounds here from August 1980, aren't we? And this is a. Seems to be like, I don't know, a little bit previous. Man, a 76 punk festival is being organised at Bradford's Panache Club for October with a major band headlining and local bands playing at what is intended to be an all-day event. The details are still being arranged and promoter is looking for more local bands. If you're interested, phone him and here's the number, blah, blah, blah. But it's 76 to enter 1980. It's a little bit kind of, isn't it early for punk nostalgia? Nostalgia isn't what it used to be. And if you, if you heard a clunky noise then, it wasn't me falling off my stool. It's Howard's dog. Arthur, who is just the most beautiful creature in the world. And when we do a credit for me and you and Howard and Jason, and we don't mention Arthur, is very remiss. So, Arthur, you're great. Um, Now, Blackpool, the Rebellion Festival. Yeah. That is always wall to wall. And if you look at the bills, they'll often have the damned on there, you know, and they'll have Vic Goddard and the Subway Sect. And all kind of different bands from the origins of punk. But then you've got Mm. all of these new punk bands coming through. But one thing that does make me laugh is there's a great album of the subway sect Vic Goddard and it's and it's called We Come as Aliens mm-hmm. and it was because they were invited to the Rebellion Festival which is just wall to wall Mohicans and leather yeah. jackets and all that kind yeah. of stuff you know the membranes play it all that kind of stuff he turned up in flip-flops with a Hawaiian shirt, did Vic? <laughs> and uh, that's, where, that's where it came from. We come as aliens. Um, but, yeah, it, it seems a little bit kind of like... It's, it's four years behind, three years behind a lot of it. It just seems a little bit kind of um, desperate, yeah. doesn't it? I think it does, yeah. Talking of desperate. Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I feel conflicted here. Kevin Keegan broadens his bid for world domination by releasing a single called To Be Home Again in England on Areola this month. Uh, magic, it says. It depended on you. You might have a different um, opinion of Keegan than I do, but obviously, growing up as a Liverpool fan, he was my first idol, and I do remember crying when he went when he signed to Hamburg because I thought. 
oh, you know, he was just like somebody I looked up to so much. I idolised Keegan. Uh, and then he went off and I was heartbroken, genuinely, you know. Yeah. Pretty- no, I, I, you know, I mean, we have a history with Kevin Keegan and I remember mm. crying when I first heard to be home again <laughs> in England. But but he, he was Man City's manager. And he was, yes. I used to go and see City train. I used to, uh, I used to know the guy who uh, was on the door at Carrington, Malcolm, mm. brilliant guy. And he just used to let me in. So there'd be people all on the other side of the fences, you like, just watching City. And we weren't, we were struggling at that point in time. Yes. Make no bones about it. But not now. But um, anyway, Bob. <laughs> um, so there'd be a lot of people there looking from the other side and I'd be in there just watching them. But at that point in time, I know this is a bit Radio 5, sorry, uh, but they ne- they didn't train properly. They just used to play five a side against each other. And that's right. why we were crap. And so my <laughs> memories of Kevin Keegan are a little bit more hollow than yours, which is fair to say. But his records, if you, <sighs> Hoddle and Waddle, that, was it Diamond Lights? Diamond Lights. I mean... Why bother, you, you know? I don't know. I mean, obviously Keegan had head over heels in love. He did fancy himself as a pop star, didn't he, with the requisite perm and everything. Yeah, and fair enough. Fair enough to yeah. him. But uh, yeah, um, we're not going to play it, are we? We aren't. Let's not, no. Obviously you've sort of interviewed Fripp, haven't you? I've met him as well, and he was just like charm personified. He was just a fascinating character, as you would imagine. And you kind of see different sides of him. But I know one of the things he has talked about in the past is that no one member, it's a bit like a football team, you know, that old sort of cliche, no one member of uh, King Crimson is bigger than the rest. But you mm. always, of course, you've always at the centre of that. It couldn't be King Crimson without Fripp, couldn't it? No, no. So it's all right for him to say. Um, yeah. What but, are you saying, Bob? Believe you me, saying no one member of King Crimson is bigger than the band itself. Except for me! Because, <laughs> exactly yeah, it. he does all these monologues to it. And, and uh, you know, and the interview, uh, Bill Bruford comes across really, really well. It's, yeah. it's interesting. It's a bit long, I think. Mm. But, uh, yeah, he, he does become, if I'm honest, and I'm a massive fan, and to have met him, and he did these Strippertronics in a room with oh. Mark Radcliffe and I, yeah. it was an honour. And, of course, yeah. the, the records that he's played on with King Crimson and Bowie and everybody else. Yeah, um, of course. But, yeah, it, it was just him, his monologues to camera mm. were just kind of unfathomable and a little well, bit maybe tiresome. it was all a bit, yeah, all you know preconceived and uh, you know deliberately obtuse but it, i think that the thing with toya i think came about because well just because well, for the hell of it i suppose but also i remember him saying a few years back you get to a certain age where people stop really looking at you it's a bit like that whole sadly that whole pensioner thing you know where you're almost invisible so you can really do what you like so in his younger days of course he would never have done something like that because it would have harmed everything he was doing creatively and artistically whereas now he can just do it and the reputation's intact. It's just, here's another weird thing that Robert Fripp's doing. OK, so at this point in proceedings, I am going to introduce to this particular programme a brand new feature, Bob, called Anagram Parsons. Can you guess oh. what the actual concept of the whole thing is? Oh, is it about country music, Mark? No. Oh. It's about anagrams, isn't it, Bob? Oh, Anagram Parsons. Anagram. Brilliant. Yeah, Brilliant. of course it is. OK, so we'll give out three clues, but we also... Oh, understandably, give out the words which have the letters within to give the name of the band that we are looking for. So, you're all right then, Bob, give us the words. Okay, the words are I'd try breathy path. So, I'd try breathy path. Now, I know you struggle with this part of it, Bob, so I'll spell it. I D T R Y B R E A T H Y P A T H. As Bob eloquently said, I'd try breathy path. Three clues to follow. Moving on now then, Bobbert, to On the Box. The highlights, well, I'm glad that the enemy agree with me on this particular point. What is it? Well, it says here, Steptoe and Son are back on BBC Two 
Seven repeats from the classic series begin with Harold looking after his ailing dad in Upstairs, Downstairs. This one from 1974. Do you want a bit of a plot summary here? Go on, Bob. So Albert's done his back in and the doctor orders bed rest uh, since it's not serious enough to warrant hospital admission. Harold is run ragged, climbing up and down the stairs to wait on him hand and foot and carrying him, even carrying him to the toilet. And when Albert's back clicks back into place, he maintains the illusion of illness. But Harold has noticed uh, beer and sweets have gone missing and so he lays a trap <laughs> <laughs> now it's weird you know because my daughters they they look at some of the things that we still find hilarious you know mm. and obviously i mean dad's army is a good a good kind of um example of this because yeah. they look at us when we're watching dad's army and chuckling and obviously it's very innocent and all that kind of stuff mm. but there's some brilliant brilliant gags in there and steptoe yeah. and son had more than dad's army in the way of cynicism didn't it it was really really dark Absolutely. I mean, that was such a strange relationship. It's based on such an odd dynamic in the first place, wasn't it? But comedy abounds. Oh, I mean, I, I absolutely love it. One of my favourite sitcoms, but I love the fact that this could well have been a precursor. I don't know if Stephen King ever saw it. Right, OK. But as we know, Harold has noticed certain things going missing when his dad's supposed to be bedridden upstairs, hmm. right? And he, and he clocks him and finds him out. Now, what happens in Misery? Can you remember? Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, obviously, it's James James Kahn, and he's kind of coming out of his wheelchair, isn't he, and secretly getting fit again and pretending he's still ill. Yeah, but when she comes back, she notices that there's a glass penguin <gasps> turned the wrong way round, Bob. True, and true. I am thinking that Stephen oh, King probably was a big fan of Steptoe and Son, and, uh, and he nicked the plot. And so I don't know if he's going to take us to court. I mean, I, I am su- I'm supposing that he will be subscribing to the Parallel Universe, so he will hear this. Um, but... Uh, if you are, if you think you're hard enough, Stephen, come on. <laughs> you know he's quite a big guy. Have you seen him? Is, I no wouldn't one. mess with Stephen King. I won't mess with these lawyers either. Actually, I right. take it back. I take it back. Echo and the Bunnymen, brackets, Bunnymen, 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 etc., claimed in a Guardian feature that a major influence on them was the Canadian poet laureate Harry Stenchcloth. (laughs) (laughs) The band made no bones, though, that by far away the biggest beacon for them was a miserable croon of Leonard Cohen, the brother of former England fullback George. And so, do you know what? I did an interview quite recently, um, and and it was with the Quietus, all about the uh, parallel universe that we're doing now. And uh, and I was mentioning the fact that the different stages of the papers which we've discussed you know so it's um, 60s quite innocent 70s quite dark 80s very flippant and 90s and mm. also the fact that Stuart McConey made stories up like Bob Holness playing saxophone yeah. on Baker Street and all that kind of stuff and this is a, another good example of it because there's nothing to be gleaned from that at all apart <laughs> from somebody taking the mickey out of Equinley Bunnyman and <laughs> Harry Stenchcloth should well, he exist <laughs> there is something to be gleaned because they were big fans of Leonard Cohen but that's about the only thing to be gleaned, didn't they? Well, the, the thing about the thing about sort of made up stories and smoke and mirrors and all the rest of it is, is still you have to still go and do your research just in case there really was a Canadian poet laureate called Harry Stenchcloth. You but know? there wasn't, was there? There wasn't. I've checked. Right, good man. On the news front, uh, Public Image Limited's new album is a live set entitled Paris au Printemps. Uh, recorded in Paris in March this year. Uh, the LP is unusual in two respects, it says. The group have taken the French connection to its logical conclusion by having the entire record sleeve printed in French. So the band's name becomes Image Publique, S.A. Right, what does the uh, S.A. stand for, Bob? And songs like Chant, Careering and Pop Tones become Salmody, 
precipitamol and tombe de pop, respectively. Really Thank good, you. Bob. I'm glad you handled that, man. I didn't. Um, it's got week. a great cover, hasn't it? Which was seemingly it, actually painted by Lydon himself. Well, it says that. It says the sleeve uh, boasts the cover painted by Lydon, which he reckons depicts himself, Keith Levine and uh, Jeanette Lee. So it's a strange one, isn't it? A little bit surreal. I couldn't work out whether the main sort of figure there, sort of looming in the background, is a giant vulture or not. Do you think it's some, some kind of like Himalayan beast? It looks like it looks like um, a gorilla with its shoulders up and its arms down to me. But the other two beasts, they look a little bit like maybe a llama. But the, do you know, I don't know if you ever do this, Bob. I'm sure you do. But whenever, you, <laughs> whenever you're eating cashew, nuts do you stick to in the front of your mouth like fangs because i'm sure that that's just a couple of donkeys with cashew nuts and they're messing about with each other i have done that before yeah but not for quite some time so i know exactly where you're coming from but yeah that could very well be it one other thing that does uh, feature predominantly in the um, the magazines of this era, uh, you could buy clothes from the back mm. of the enemy. Mm. And uh, I love this one. So this is Clash gear. So you've got mm. bondage jacket, PVC yeah. straights, Clash jeans, zip T-shirts, motorbike jacket, drill straight. So it's not it's not really exactly the Clash kind of uniform, but it kind of, they've got a picture of the Clash here. Mm-hmm. And it is basically, you think, I want to look like the Clash. And you can do it all in one place based in Bristol. They're trying to marry two worlds together, aren't they? There's no class of affiliation there whatsoever. No endorsement, nothing. Just a big black and white, great, moody black and white picture there and uh, a list of clothes you can buy. Definitely. Now, the, at least, you know, it's a drawing, it's a, mm. a, a picture, and it's quite crude. It's just black and white, and it's just a block print, really. And you can't really tell any detail in the Clash clothing. But mm. moving on to 20 oh. pleat Bowie pants. <laughs> would you like... I, I, I want to pass yeah. this over to you, Bob. Please... Uh, I'll describe. have to describe it. So, obviously, you know, the Clash advert's a good one. This is all hand-drawn. It's a sort of thing you might expect uh, somebody at school, perhaps a 16 or 17-year-old, to do. But it's an advert, essentially, for 20-pleat Bowie pants, terribly drawn. There is a picture, which I'm guessing is Bowie. It kind of looks a bit like him, but they haven't actually put any detail on, apart from uh, these very, very pleated pants that he's wearing. And the microphone. It's got the sizes here. You've got them, uh, let's see, colours black, blue, red, white, maroon, and then it says he can send a cheque or cash to the alien and gives an address in Bolton in Lancashire. And uh, refunds given, it says, in goods if goods are unsatisfactory. It is a terrible advert. The £15, by the way, 1980, that's probably, I don't know, standard, wasn't it? It's terrible. And there's no Bowie endorsement. Definitely no Bowie endorsement, but I'm just wondering how many aliens lived in Bolton at that particular point (laughs) in time. But not only that, what I really love about it, as you say, the illustration is so very very poor but also mm. apart from glass spider perhaps this is my i'm only speaking personally my least favorite bowie look so it's kind of that those big daft pants that he wore on the stage yeah. tour and <laughs> yeah. so if there's anything that i wouldn't want from bowie's wardrobe no. at that point in time because of course at this point in time mm. glass spider hadn't happened it would be mm. them pants 1980 we'd had punk we're in the post-punk era perhaps wondering where music is going it's the same kind of thing in the air is rock and roll dead you know is the guitar music dead Uh, especially with the advent of synth pop as well which seemed to usher in perhaps you know an uncertain era but you know a different kind of thing yeah, and it's funny because I, I call it the old man's disease. You know, whereby when you when you hear a tune, you think, "Oh yeah, that sounds like that." Oh yeah, I remember that. You know, and there's some bands I remember in the eighties. I think, "Yeah, I've heard the Velvet Underground. I don't need to hear this again." But not everybody had heard the Velvet Underground, and it and it's kind of the Victor Meldrew kind of uh, look, isn't it? Uh, you know, looking back yeah. and saying things were great. 
ah, that's the way it should have been, and now it's all going awry. And of course it wasn't, because music is more popular now than ever, and we are still looking back at all of these magazines. Like I say, if you're looking back at 50, 50 years' worth of music publications, so it yeah. wasn't just a fish and chip wrapper, was it? It was something no, it that people want to have a look at. And it's also easy to overlook the fact that uh, some one person's old is another person's new. That's the way it's always worked, doesn't it? People are discovering artist bands at different times in their lives, and it's meaning different things, and they're bringing their own experience to it. So there's always a there's always a fresh angle somewhere. That's how it tends to work. And I, I, one of the magazines I write for, Classic Rock, has seems to go through this every maybe five, six, seven years, where they have a it's a big peace big debate is rock and roll dead is this the end of rock as we know it and of course it isn't somehow it always replenishes itself and that's it's a cycle an ongoing cycle okay so um upcoming gigs of the week well mm. oh, look at this look at this you know as it, it's a i don't know quarter page ad here teardrop explodes the fall joseph k thompson twins and the fire engines at the lyceum that's uh, sunday the 16th of november uh, Go on, I know you've got a story here. Well, I mean, I had to get in touch with um, the Falls Mr. Memory Man, which is Paul Hanley. Hello, Paul. Oh, he won't be subscribing, he can't afford a pound a week. Um, so, um, the Fall, for some reason or other, didn't play. It wouldn't surprise me at all if it was because the Tear of Explodes at the top of the poster and Mark saw it. That wouldn't surprise <laughs> okay, me. But if you look at it, it's a guy called John Curd who ran mm. Straight Music Presents. Um, mm. yeah, Straight Music, the organisation. And... Uh, he was a colourful character. I do remember these Lyceum Sunday night shows were legendary. We did a fair few of them. One called Gig of the Century with the Gang of Four and the Mekons and the Human League and Stiff Little Fingers. And it was at that particular one. We played there quite a lot. We headlined it as well. We had mm. felt opening for us on one particular occasion. But I do remember we played with um, with Stiff Little Fingers, as I say, on this uh, Gig of the Century. And there were a lot of Stiff Little Fingers fans who were a bit more vociferous than the other fans you can imagine you know gang mm-hmm. of four quite arty mekons again and human league and then the fall pretty off kilter but all the people down the front seemed to be waiting with bated breath for stiff little fingers who seemed you know a little bit kind of incongruous on that bill really didn't really yeah. fit in quite so well and uh, i do remember that um, i was wearing a pair of the drummers brothel creepers or beetle crushers if you like and his feet were at least one size probably two sizes bigger <laughs> than mine and so there were I was, it was like I was walking around on planks of wood. They were very, very clunky and uh, and not at all comfortable. But I do remember at one point in time, this uh, this scrote, uh, I'm, I'm sure he won't mind me calling him that, mm-hmm. uh, jumped out of the crowd. I don't know how, because the Lyceum stage was very, very tall. He jumped right. over the... I was watching him, and he was swearing at us and shouting at us and all that while we were on. He jumped over the railing, onto the stage, thumped Mark Smith. And then turned round quickly, and I was the closest to him. I kicked him up the backside, and he went flying back into the crowd. But I, I, do, I will remember it like it was yesterday. The, this brothel creeper shoe was just about hanging on my toe. So right. my foot was still in the air, and, the, and it was swinging back and forth, and it was that close to following this scrote 
into the crowd. And I got off and went down, tied it up again as best I could and carried on. And the funny thing is, it was a, um, a, a, an American version of the Live at the Witch Trials debut album by The Fall. And it's got mm. a different cover on it than the usual line drawing. And it is a photograph from that gig. And you can kind of see, right, it looks like I'm stood on two bricks. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not. Brilliant. I'm, I'm in the drummer's shoes. But yeah, those, those Sunday night gigs that, wow. that John Curd used to put on. But oh, that's the end of the story. I do remember, well, as we carried on, John Curd, he was a big guy, might still be a big guy, don't know if he's still with us. Um, he just went through the crowd and it parted and he just grabbed him by the scruff of the neck, wow. dragged him right back through the crowd and I saw him bumping him up against the wall at the side of the Lyceum like Boom, don't do that wow. again. Boom. <laughs> while really? We're, while we're carrying on. <laughs> Amazing. So if, if you're a brothel creeper, I know it wasn't yours, you borrowed it, but if that had flung into the crowd there, would you have gone chasing after it? I don't think so. The albums, you just to um, have a cursory glance, we've got Stevie Wonder, Hotter Than July, Status Quo, Just Supposing, which again, I don't know too well. And though I do recognise within the review here, they kind of think that they're softening round the edges. Mm. But some of the tunes on this album are pretty straightforward quo. It's not like it, it's got uh, Margarita Time or, you know, the one about the <laughs> army. <laughs> In the army now. In the one, army yeah, yeah. now. It's not that bad. Yeah, you might think they're called status quo because they never change, it says, but that's simply not true. On one hand, they still can't count past 12, but on the other, they've got richer, older, and more self-conscious. Uh, it does say that uh, men who ride in limos acquire pretensions, and status quo's pretension these days is to quality. They like their records to sound sharp, polished, even well-crafted. A definite touch of the Abbas, alas. What's with the alas? What's wrong with Abba? Absolutely. Did them no harm, did it? Um, OK, all. then uh, going to the classifiers now, we've got uh, lots of fan clubs here. The Kiss Army mm. Fan Club, which is based in London. Led Zeppelin magazine, tight but loose which is available from Bedford, the official mm. Piranhas fan club. So yeah. the Piranhas never really struck me as a band who might need a fan club. No offence to anybody, <laughs> but they, which, you know, as we know, just means offence to everybody, but uh, particularly the Piranhas. Uh, mm. Well, that was uh, based in Brighton, which is where the Piranhas were based, so you have to wonder <laughs> whether they generated their own fan club. Oh, are you saying that's a made-up name there on the fan club address, Mark? Mm, could possibly be. Possibly, yeah. Thanks for listening to this taster episode of the Parallel Universe. If you want to hear more, join us by searching for Parallel Universe on Patreon.com. Prepare to exit the Parallel Universe. And shut the door on your way out.